Welcome to the Authentic Church Podcast with Jeff and Fawn Peterson in Orange County, California, where our mission is simply to love God, love people, and live authentic. For more information on Authentic Church, visit us online at AuthenticOC.com. Thank you for listening. We are in week two of a series that we titled Battle for the Bible. Battle for the Bible. And, uh, and, and, and just the thought of that, like there's, there, there's a struggle that's going on in the spiritual realm, and it's not a new one. It's an age-old one uh, where Satan is in the garden, and you see him. What does he say to Adam and Eve? He said, did God really say? And then when, when Satan shows up to tempt Jesus during his fast, what does he do? He begins to question and, and, and takes and he twists Scripture. That's why it's so important that with all the excitement and all the hype and all the passion that we experience in life, and I'm, I'm a fan, I'm a very passionate person. It's just the way that I'm wired. Um, pa- passionate Irish Catholic family, right? You know, going to Notre Dame. And so, you know, like we are passionate, passionate people. And, uh, but with all that passion, you have to have the anchor of the word of God in your life. If you're not, then you're just going to be tossed with every wind of doctrine or ideology or deconstruction or whatever that comes. That's the latest thing. And it's not the latest thing. It's just a new attack. That's just, it's the same spirit. It's just packaged in a different way. Look at all throughout the scriptures. It's the same spirit. It's just packaged in a different way. And so we've been going through this and, and our, our hope is that you're not just getting some great facts. So you can be like an ace at Bible trivia, uh, but and I know some people love that. I, I, I'm a fan, but it's not just so you could be an ace at Bible trivia, but that you would actually experience the truth of the Word of God and that it would transform you. And hopefully during this time, there's a, a fresh hunger, like there's a fresh desire. Hopefully there's even some big questions. Anytime you get into talking about uh, doctrine and theology, a lot of times you raise more questions than you answer, which is not necessarily the goal of whoever's teaching or communicating. But the, but the, the thought is that a lot of times as you begin to dive in, suddenly some thoughts come in and you go, I've never thought about that. Or I wonder about this. And it leads you down these beautiful rabbit trails with God. So we've been going through some tra- rabbit trails, but the goal is that it's not mere facts. Facts Mere facts inform us, but the truth of God transforms us. Amen? So I'm going to pray. I know we've been doing a lot of praying and worshiping. I'm going to pray right now as we encounter the Word of God that whatever is going on in your thoughts, your mind, or outside of the four walls of this place, that whatever that stuff is, that that just fades and that we be able to just tune in to what the Holy Spirit would say to us here in this moment. So Lord, we give you the microphone. We ask you to speak. Nobody came here to hear a man speak. We all came to hear you speak. And I pray you breathe on your word. I pray you open the eyes of our hearts, our understanding, God, that we would have fresh revelation. God, we'd be able to uh, see something we never saw before today in your holy scriptures. We thank you, Lord God. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would breathe and speak on your word fresh and new. That same breath that breathed life and brought these words about. God, would you breathe life into these words as we listen and hear and apply them in our lives today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to go, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be jumping around in a lot of different scriptures. It's a, more of a teaching rather than an exegetical um, or topical type of uh, preaching session or what have you. It's going to be a little bit more line upon line, precept upon precept. So we're going to jump through. So uh, taking notes today, the first scripture that we're going to dive into is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, 16, it says this. 
All scripture is inspired of God. Can we say that together? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all scripture is God breathed. And I, I just want to outline what that means because that's those, those five words given by inspiration of God. That's actually one word in the Greek. And if you take a look in the Greek, it's the, it's theopanus. <laughs> I butchered that. How are you today? Who speaks Greek in here? <laughs> Theonostos. Thank you. Jesus, help me. Theonostos. It's a Greek word. I had, I had Theo and then Theopolis written down in my notes. I don't know. So it screwed me up. Theonostos. So what does that mean? It's a Greek word meaning given by inspiration of God. So we have Theo, which is Greek for gods. And then we have Neustos, which is the breath of God. So the idea was, you know, we, we, we have different scriptures. And I think it's Psalms 33. I don't have it up here on the text. But it says that everything came about by the word of God and by the breath of his mouth. So the word of God, when the word of God goes forth, it goes out on the breath of God. So right now as I'm speaking, I'm breathing, right? So the words that are coming out of my mouth are being carried by the my breath. So as God spoke, it came with the breath of God. So it's the, it's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that brought about the scriptures that you and I have today. Isaiah 55, 11 says this, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Today, God is still speaking his words to individuals. He is still speaking and he breathes on the, the written text, the logos, and he brings a fresh word, the rhema, and he encounters, your spirit begins to encounter God in a fresh way. And so there's the word of God that's going forth today as we begin to read and as as we share about the Word of God, when you're out at lunch and you're sharing it, you're sharing the Holy Scriptures that was breathed out by the, by the breath of God, like by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So don't discount your personal Bible time when you sit down and you open the Word of God and you begin, you begin to read and you begin to take in that transformative power of the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us, says the Word of God is living, it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows the man's heart that walked in here. He knows every heart. He knows the intentions. He knows the subtle area. And how does he speak? How does he correct us? By his word. So he'll give his spirit, but he'll breathe through his word. And so if somebody is averse to hearing from the word of God or the correction through the word of God, and oftentimes the correction of a person that God's placed in authority of our lives, if we push back on that, we're not really pushing back on a man, we're pushing back on God. And it's really important when you're reading the scriptures to allow God to just search my heart. God, would you search my heart? Is there any... Is there any offensive way in here towards you or anyone else? 
That's why Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples to pray, they call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer because Jesus says, forgive us as we forgive those. And Jesus didn't need to be forgiven of anything because he didn't do anything wrong. All right. But he's teaching them a principle that if you're going to come to God and if you really want to encounter him, if you really want to engage with him, if you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart, it's going to rear its ugly head. And in unforgiveness, in a spirit of unforgiveness, you do some stupid stuff. Like anybody ever done anything that was foolish where you're just angry or frustrated or what you lash out, you said something, you did, man, and you're, you're like, Oh man, I wish I could get those words back into my mouth, right? None of you married people I know have ever had anything like that happen. I know it's only Vaughn and I, but occasionally I've said some things where I went, Oh no, you know, zing, you want to bring it back. It's too late, right? All right, so the Bible, getting back to the Bible, let's get back to the Bible. The Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And we went through a whole teaching on this uh, last week. If you didn't catch it, I encourage you to go listen to the podcast. We unpack this a little bit more in greater detail, those three key areas that the Bible is inspired, the Bible is inerrant, and the Bible is infallible. Now, the Bible, if you open your Bible and you look at it, you're going to see 66 books in your Bible. You have the Old Testament... And you have the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's 39 books. In the New Testament, there's 27 books. So the Bible consists of 66 books. So the Bible is a collection of books. And I remember when we planted Authentic Church, we planted it, uh, you know, we moved here from Texas. We're the only humans that moved here from Texas in the last two years. And we moved here to plant Authentic Church. And we started seeing people get saved. And then they'd come over to our house and we'd usually have a meal. And then after the meal and we'd share, then we'd go and, and grab Bibles. And there was a, a new believer and I bought him his first Bible. And I, and I made the mistake of saying this, said, okay, we're going to open the Bible today. We're going to go to the book of Luke and I'm going to show you some things about Jesus. And literally the man said, Hey, uh, pastor, I got the Bible book that you bought me, but is there a, who's is Luke? Is that another book we were supposed to bring tonight? And I said, well, no, the Bible has Luke. It's one of the books and the Bible's a book. Okay, time out. And so then, so then we kind of did a, a quick little Bible study on what the Bible is, which by the way, those are good questions to have in a newly formed church, right? We didn't start authentic church to empty any other churches. We're not the latest thing, or excuse me, we're not the greatest thing. We just happen to be the latest thing. We didn't start this church to empty other churches. We started this church to empty those that were going to hell that they could find life in Christ, right? And so the Old Testament, 29 books, or 39 books, the New Testament, 27 books, it's literally the book of books. And if you take the, the Greek word biblios, is it means the book. The Bible is known as the book, the holy book. Everybody say the book. All right. So the Bible was written by God, uh, but it was through human authors. So there was 40 different authors in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, it was written across three different continents and over the span of 1,500 years. And it has total, total, total continuity. Uh, uh, my, my sister-in-law, for a season before she married her incredible husband, she dated this guy who was Muslim. And, and he obviously believed the Quran. And so him and I would go back and forth and he would try to discredit the Bible. And, and I, I don't really like personally, like I don't, I don't, I'm happy to engage in conversation like that uh, when somebody's really seeking to know the truth. But if somebody's not really seeking, like I have yet to see the fruits of those conversations, just me personally, if they're not really seeking, right? And so I, I, I just, he said, there's so many authors. 
I said, well, there's one author, but there was written by 40 men. He goes, okay. But, it, and it was written over such a long period of time. I said, I know. And, and I said, and no other book has been under the scrutiny that the Bible has, but the Bible still comes out a-okay every single time, spotless, right? I said, now, let me challenge your book that was written over a span of, I think it was like between, I think it was like 30 years-ish, the Quran was. It was written by one person. And, and they wrote the, they wrote their, their book based on stories and teachings of Muhammad, who, who's dead, who, who did not have a resurrection. Okay, right, like he's dead. And you guys wrote that, and by the way, it was written a, a ways after he had passed away. Well, we have writings in the New Testament that are within 100 years, that they're within the time span of Jesus' life. Like they begin, people begin writing things right after he died, excuse me, not within his life, within their lives. They began writing things down on parchment paper and different things, and it began circulated, and the word of God went forth. If, 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 the, Bible, um, if the Bible truly wasn't true, why is it hated so badly? Like if it truly isn't true, then why, why are people killed, murdered, for having a copy of it in their house if the Bible's not true? If it's not true, there's no power in it, because there is power in it. Satan knows that there's power in it. And that's why he's on a destructive path that he wants to rob it. And he's done a pretty good job at robbing young Christians of the word of God, right? You go back through and you read the parable where Jesus is talking about, it's really the parable of the soil. Um, it's not necessarily the, the seeds that are sown. It's the soil that, that, that takes the seed in. And some fell on rocky ground, right? Some fell and then thorns grew up. It's the soil. And you have so many Christians right now that get excited or they have a hot head about something or they hear some teaching on TikTok or Instagram and they're like, wow, that's amazing. And then they go back and it's like, it's totally not scriptural. I mean, it sounds inspirational, but it's not scriptural. So what makes up the Bible? So um, the, the, the fact that the, the Bible has faced so much scrutiny and still has stood the test of time, I mean, that, and, he, they over, and it was written over 1,500 years and it Total has total continuity. To me, that's a reason to believe the Bible, not believe the Bible. So if somebody says, well, how do you know the Bible's true? My response, kind of like to the atheist, is how do you know the Bible's not true? You read the historical writings that are referenced so many times by historians, not just Christian. I mean, secular and sacred alike, they agree on certain things. That there was a man named Jesus who lived in Nazareth, and he had this ministry primarily around Galilee. Like, I mean, they, they believe that. You, you go to Israel today and you ask any Jews, they'll tell you, oh yeah, there was, but they just don't believe that he was the Messiah. So I asked, I like to ask them a question and I asked my, my sister's, uh, my sister-in-law's boyfriend this question. I said, was Jesus a, a prophet, a teacher, or was he God? And they said, no, 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 we don't believe he was God. He was a prophet. I said, okay. Do you believe he was a true prophet or a false prophet? He said, he was a true prophet. We would believe he's a true prophet. I said, okay. You know what Jesus said about himself? No. He actually claimed to be God. He actually said that he was going to die, predicted his own death, predicted his resurrection. Like there was prophecies written 700 years before that he went to the cross. There was prophecies that talked about how people would cast lots for his clothing. How could he even fulfill that prophecy? That's a head structure, you know. Some people just want to believe what they want to believe. But you cannot deny the truth. And one day, all of us are going to stand before Almighty God. We're going to have to give an account with what we did with His Son, Jesus. Okay? And the Bible shows us Jesus clearly. So I'm going to talk today. My, my primary focus today is going to be the canonization of Scripture in the next 20 minutes that we have together. And I want to begin with this thought. 
By the way, if you're going like canon, canonization of scripture, what is that? We're going to unpack that here in a second. The term canon actually comes from a Greek word, and it refers to like this measuring instrument. Like you would have a ruler today, or uh, for you contractors in the room, you got, you know, you, know, you, 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 you have your, um, what are they? Tape measure, thank you. And I, this is a guy that owns a construction company. Okay. So. <laughs> my joke in my house with my wife is I can barely... Uh, uh, nail a hammer into the wall. So anyway, so you have the tape measure, nail a hammer into the wall. It's anyway, so it's supposed to be funny. Man, killing it today. So here's the thought. Here's the thought. The thought is this. God is love. Next slide. And it's coming up. God is love. There it goes. Here's the thought. God is love. Love requires relationship. Relationship requires what? God communicates. I mean, is as simple as I can break it down for you when it comes to the Word of God. That's about as simple as it gets. Like, so this is the Word of God. Yeah. How do we know? Well, because God is love. So because God is love, that's, we have the Bible. I don't understand. Well, because God is love, love requires relationship. Relationship requires communication. So God communicates. How does he communicate? He gave us his word, the love letter, the ultimate love letter to all of humanity to read. So I'm going to go through the biblical canon. And, and um, the, the biblical canon is a list of books that form the Bible, okay? And the fundamental question when we look at the canon is, are we looking at an authorized collection of writings or a collection of authoritative writings. And I know some, some of you are going like, I'm only on my first cup of coffee today, Jeff. That doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so is the Bible an authorized collection of writings or is it a collection of authoritative writings? Okay, as, as, a, as a Catholic boy growing up, I would have fallen in the camp that said it's an authorized collection of writings. Like this, it was a collection of writings that, um, the, that the, the, the leaders said, this is what we're going to put in, into, into the form of a Bible. Okay. From a Protestant evangelical Christian perspective, I would fall on the latter side. I would say that it's a collection of authoritative writings, that they were, that they were authoritative writings authored by Almighty God, penned through people, but then the church collected and then it was canonized. When was it canonized? It was canonized when John wrote the last line in the book of Revelation. That's when it was canonized. Now we recognize it as the church but it was canonized. It was our, the ruler was done. It was measured. This is where this stops and this starts. That, like it, that was done. So it was canonized at the last writing when John penned his last letter. That's when it was canonized. We recognized it as canon. We recognized it in the fact that that was indeed the word of God later on. And let's jump into that a little bit. So you have your Hebrew Bible, you have your Old Testament, your New Testament. And then over the course of time, you had early church history and uh, the post-apostolic um, age, okay? So you have the Hebrew Bible and that, that is formed with what would be our Old Testament, then you have the New Testament, and then you'd have early church history. So in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible is known among Jews as the Tanakh. Okay, everybody say that, Tanakh. 
You guys sound so official. Tanakh. So it, it's derived from an acronym of this, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. And so Torah is the instruction of the law. That's the what we would know as the Pentateuch, the first five books, Penta meaning five, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as a good Jewish boy, you would have grown up in school and you have been memorizing all of Genesis all of uh, uh, Exodus, all of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You would have to memorize that, right? Leviticus. Just think about that, okay? You would memorize it. So this is the Tanakh. So it, it consists of, the Tanakh consists of what you and I would recognize as the Old Testament. When you say that to a Jewish person, you're liable to offend them. So be careful with your words. You can refer to it as the Tanakh. So if you have any Jewish friends, you can sound really scholarly and say, oh, what have you been reading in the Tanakh? You know, so, so that's the Tanakh. So the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written um, from about 1400 BC to 430 BC. Now remember, when you think about time, 1400, don't think 1400s as in a few, uh, like, like a thousand years ago. Don't, don't, I'm, you got to go back past the birth of Christ. So this is before Christ, 1400 years before Christ came on the scene. Okay, that's when it started writing and then it ended about 430 BC. And you can see how the word of God was established through Moses and the prophets. So you have the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Then you have this historical books, right? That would be Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, uh, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Then you have the poetic and the wisdom writings, right? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. And then you would have the major prophets, including Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then you have the minor prophets. It's not major and minor based on like they had a major in school or a minor in school. Okay, it's just the size of the book, really. That's they, they, the size of the book. They had big writings. They were like, you're a major prophet. Well, you just had a short book, then you were part of the minor prophets. No offense to the minor prophets, but um, love, love me some minor prophets. Zephaniah 317, one of my favorite ones. Anyways, so, uh, so, so you had this laid out. And so this, this makes up the Old Testament. So the, the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, would have all these books. Now they have them in a little bit different order. Um, and some, some uh, theologians would believe Job would actually be the first book. There's, Job is such a questionable book. Um, you can go down massive rabbit trails and you're never going to find the right answer. I'm just telling you, you're never going to find the right answer. Um, everybody still debates it to this day. You get two Jews in a room, you got three opinions, okay? So Job, Job is a highly contested book, okay? So, uh, so but, but we agree with, with the Jews, as Jesus does, that that was canonized scripture, meaning that there was a beginning and then there was an end of what they would have as their holy writings. So some of you might be sitting here, uh, any um, recovering Catholics in the room with me? All right, God bless us. Okay, so growing up Catholic, you know, we had 46 books in our Old Testament, you know, and you Protestants have 39. Why did that happen? Well, there was, a, there was a, a council that happened among the Catholic bishops back in that day. It was the council, I believe it was the Council of Florence in 1442. Don't quote me on that. Um, but I believe it was the Council of Florence in 1442. Now, this is after Christ, okay, not before. Okay, so 1442. There was a council that was had, and during that council, they decided to put some different books in there, like Tobit. Maccabees, some of those types of things that you'll see in a Catholic Bible, where for the Jewish scholars, they would say, those are fine, those are great writings, we do not view those as holy scriptures. The Jewish people. And th those books weren't even, they, it, some people say, well, why, why, why did the Protestants take out those scriptures? And they get it backwards. No, 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 the Protestants just never put them in. Okay, so the Catholics added to what was canonized. Not not like the Protestants took away. 
that we, we agree, we agree with our Bibles, the New King James Version, the ESV, NIV, NLT, whatever you got, whatever you have there, that we agree the fact that the canonization of scriptures coincides with what the Jewish believers and their scholars and their expert scribes would say, this is scripture. And we'd agree with Jesus, and this is scripture. We'll get into that in a second. So Psalms 33 verse 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by all the host of them, by the breath of his mouth. So the word of God breathes those words. And one of the uh, relics that we have that points to the validity of the Old Testament was the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947 in the caves of Qumran and is located in the north, uh, west, northwestern shores of the Dead Sea. So it, actually, I've been there myself. You, you have this massive hike or what have you get up to the top and it overlooks the Dead Sea. It's beautiful. And then you can see and peek down to where the caves were. So there was a guy that was there and ended up finding in these jars, all these scrolls. Well, he opened it up and read them and it turned out that he's actually reading like original scrolls from the prophet Isaiah. Now we know that these were not the original, original, these were copies of the original, but because they were so like the copies that you and I have it even more so uh, validified the fact that, man, these are the actual scriptures that came out of that little cave right there, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, I'm not going to get into the Apocrypha or the Septuagint or any of that stuff today. I'm just focusing on, on the canon. But the Lord preserved, all to say, the Lord preserved his word. And when we stumbled across it, those findings that they had there only verified and confirmed what we already believe to be the word of God. Like the prophet Isaiah, when they read through the book of Isaiah, there's like, this is, this is the same writings. The one that you and I have to this day that stood the test of time. And this dates, uh, back all, some of them, uh, manuscripts dated back all, all the way to 125 BC. So 125 years before Christ, they had Old Testament scriptures that they found in the caves. So, uh, beautiful. Deuteronomy 18 says this. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So the Lord was so strict on who would speak and who wouldn't speak for him. If you say in your heart, how we mean, what may we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, verse 22, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. So in other words, the Lord is confirming. He's saying, you're going to know because you're going to see the fruit of that word be spoken. You're going to see it pass out. Now, they may not have seen it in their lifetime, and most prophets did not see it in their lifetime. Um, you take a look at Daniel. Daniel talked about in his book the rise and fall of different kingdoms that would come down to one kingdom, and all this stuff happened hundreds of years later. You talk, take a look at uh, uh, crucifixions, and, and when David penned that and talked about crucifixions, it was 500 years before the crucifying somebody was even like a thing on the earth. Like, I mean, the Bible is just so magnificent. All right, let's jump into the New Testament. So the New Testament, so the New Testament writers is a little bit different than the Old Testament, but there's this, you see this interlocking, the same theme. And Jesus validates the canon of the Old Testament when he speaks this in Luke 24. So in Luke 24, Jesus says, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? So in other words, Jesus is pointing back in time and he's calling on the prophets and sharing that the Holy Scriptures talked about him. So he is in that statement right there and a few other ones. He's verifying that's the canon of Scripture, meaning that had a start and an end. Like 
he's recognizing that. In John 10.35, Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus himself validates these 39 books of the Old Testament, that they are inspired, uh, that they're inerrant, infallible, that they are the Word of God. There was a man named Josephus. Some of you may know the name. You get to see what he looks like. Fancy dude. So Josephus, he, he was in the first century. He was a Jewish historian and a military officer in Israel. And he actually talked about the canonization of scriptures. He actually says in his writings, historical accounts, that the Jewish canon was completed and closed since the time of the Persian king Artaxerxes. He says, he says that there was no more uh, authoritative writings uh, after the reign of Artaxerxes. And so during that time, you have Ezra. Um, during that time, uh, you, you had uh, the book of Nehemiah ends up getting written. And then between the time of Malachi and Josephus' writings, about 425 BC, uh, there's no additional material that was added to the Jewish Tanakh or to our Old Testament. Okay, So that's where, and some people call it the 400 years of silence. Listen, God was still doing things, okay? God God was still doing things on the earth. We just don't have, uh, they just has not been recognized. It was not recognized as scriptures, a holy writing that would be canonized. The canon was completed and everything was pointing to the coming Messiah. Get ready, get ready, get ready. And then Jesus comes on to the scene. So in the New Testament, and let me unpack this, the New Testament was written from roughly the 40s to 90 AD, so a smaller period of time. And there's five core divisions of the New Testament. You have the Gospels, which is life and teachings of Jesus. You have early church history with the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. You have the Pauline epistles, which I always thought, like, when I would hear that, I was like, that sounds so feminine, you know, but <laughs> that's Paul's writings. And then you had the general epistles, and then you had the uh, book of Revelation prophecy. So, so in, even through that, we see this interlocking, and actually, they begin to quote each other, and the Word of God as the canonized New Testament begins to be referenced by the church. So I want to give you three criteria that was used in the recognition of scriptures that were put in as canonized scriptures, okay? There's three criteria. Number one was the authorship. Like, it had to be written by, was this written by one of the apostles, or like, you know, uh, a disciple of a disciple of a disciple that was one of the apostles, right? So they had to go back. They wanted to make sure, was this the actual writing that came from one of the apostles? Like I referenced James 4.8. Well, James is Jesus's brother, and he was one of the leaders in the early church. So when they read the book of James, they go, yep, that, that we, we, we can validate that was, that was an authorized version. Now, there's also been some really unique things that have come out uh, that came out later on. There was a gospel of Thomas, uh, there was a gospel of Peter. And what would happen is people would try to say, hey, there's this gospel of Peter, and there's different people who knew Peter. Like, he visited my dad's church. I remember when I was a kid, and Peter came to our church, and you're saying there's a gospel of Peter? He never talked about writing the gospel of Peter. Like, can you show us what that is? And because that lacked the authenticity, it was thrown out. So, and if you want to go try to find it and read it, have fun. Uh, the, the, so the authorship, the apostolic writings. The second one was, was the content. Was the content, was the doctrine, was the theology, was it congruent with what we're seeing? Is there continuity or are there some things off? And then the third was the acceptance. Were, was it accepted by the apostles? Was it accepted by the early church? And just as Jesus quoted the Old Testament, and it says he walked them through when he appeared to them. Remember, he talks on the road to Emmaus. He talks them through and he shows them, right, from the law 
through the writings, the Psalms, and through the prophets, how the Messiah would have to come and suffer and die and be resurrected, right? Remember that, that story? So Jesus references those. Well, we see in the writings of the New Testament that some of the writers begin to kind of like give attaboys and, and, uh, and honorable mentions. It's like at mentioning somebody, uh, tagging somebody on Instagram, right? So they're tagging different people within their writings. And one of them um, was uh, 2 Peter 3.16. So Peter's actually referring to Paul's writings when he says this. He says, as also in all his epistles, Paul. So he's talking about Paul. So basically he's saying, you know, in Paul's epistles, speaking them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught, unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So I want pause right there. So what's happening in the scriptures? So Peter is referencing Paul and he's talking about Paul's epistles, right? Well, we just talked about the New Testament, the Pauline epistles, the letters from, from Paul. And what does he call them? He likens it to what? The scriptures. So we have Peter referencing Paul saying his letters are held in high esteem, the same esteem that you would put with scriptures. Powerful. So that was one of the other things that you see in the formation. Is this actually one of the writings that is recognized authoritative? Colossians 4.16. This is uh, Paul's closing exhortation and blessings to the, the church in Colossae. He says, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it's read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that you like, likewise, you read the epistle from Laodicea. In other words, there's this swapping that's going on. And he's saying, hey, I wrote this and I wrote that. And I want you guys to kind of like compare notes. Because what I wrote to them actually applies to you too. But rather than take time to write it down, just, just read what I said to them. And he's telling the, show, the, show this letter that I'm showing you here. Will you show it to them as well? And so you begin to see this happening with the New Testament church. And so there's this, there's this universal authority that's happening for instructing the people of God in their relationship with Christ. So now let's, so taking you from the, the Old Testament through the New Testament, now we're, now we're in the early church or what some would call the post-apostolic period, okay? So Christianity spreading. All, all the original disciples, the apostles, they're, they're gone. And, and now it's, it's their, you know, it's, it's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the first movement and the church is springing up and you have different churches in different areas and people are wondering, well, you're, you're, you're down in Ethiopia. We're over here in Turkey. Well, we're over here in Greece or we're over here in Rome and they begin to connect. And then suddenly you have this change that happens in history where Christianity, you know, at the time early on, like Christians were hunted. Like they, they were hiding because they would be killed for worshiping Jesus, right? And so then there was a transition where suddenly it was okay to be a Christian. You, you still weren't respected by the Jews. They may not trade with you in the marketplace, but you were at least weren't going to be killed. You were actually protected for your faith. And, and, and so that began to happen. So when that kind of opened up freedoms for the gospel to be talked about openly and spread, then what ended up happening is the church leaders all start, hey, we should get together. And so you have what they call different councils. And so it'd be like you'd have the, the church in Turkey would meet with the church in Italy, and, and then, then they would meet with this church over here in Israel, and then they would meet with these guys that were coming up out of Africa, and they were connecting, and they were sharing scriptures and texts, and this leader letter from Paul, and this is one of the gospels from Matthew, and, 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 and the early church begins to recognize these as being holy documents. And, and so this begins to circulate. 
And so you see through this landscape of the early church, the 27 books and writings standing in the test of time. And, and, and those scriptures were canonized as New Testament. And then you have this guy, this uh, early church history, Eusebius. Here's Eusebius. So he was about 260 to 340 AD. Okay, so that's about three, this 300 years plus after Jesus dies on the cross and then ascends into heaven. And he is a Greek early church historian. And, um, and, and he, he actually said these books when he wrote and penned that he references these 27 books in some of his writings as being, uh, this, this, these Christian, this Christian doctrine, these Jesus, the way of Jesus. These, these are the writings that his followers are using. So he actually references what we know as the 27 New Testament books. And then in 367 AD, you have this guy named uh, Athanasius, and he he actually is the first one that we know of who clearly like fully defined like this is this is the stance, and he he wrote his letter. So every every uh, every few months they would write letters, and they would send them out to the different the different church leaders, and just reminding them of some different things and doctrine and ways, and it was a way of their communication. And so he actually writes the 39th Festal Letter. And it, as we know, is actually the first authoritative statement on the canon of the New Testament. If you want to go and research that, take a picture of that good-looking dude there. And, uh, and you can go and research it. But he was basically, he was, he was a short Egyptian uh, bishop. And, um, and he had a lot of enemies. Uh, some people didn't like him for the truth that he was actually exiled many times. And so he wrote, he actually wrote this letter from exile saying, you know, and here he is in exile and he is saying, these actually, these are the writings. These are the writings. You guys are wondering about that gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Peter um, and some of these different books that you're hearing about. Um, uh, the, the, what was it? The, there was a shepherd's book that was written. They said, hey, that's a good book. Like there's value there. He's you know, he's, he's a modern day writer and he's taking some great doctrinal things and just putting in a way that we can understand, but that's not scripture. So we don't want that read aloud in the church when we're reading the scriptures, but that's okay to read. Like, I mean, those types of conversations are happening. So what does this all mean? Let me just kind of bring it full circle, wrap a little bit of a bow on it. So going back to the beginning, we know that God is love. Okay. Just break it down in simplistic terms. God is love. Love requires relationship. Relationship requires communication, okay? God communicates, and he communicates to us through his word. For more information on Authentic Church, visit us online at AuthenticOC.com.